Good morning, everybody. I hope you are having a successful time of your preparations for going over to Belgium and to enjoy Europe. And I hope that perhaps the study of the Apostle Paul, as we're doing at this particular point, will be a good preparation for that. It's also my hope that when you get there, and I am not aware of your specific itinerary, uh, where you plan to go and where those who lead the group plan to take you, but I'm hoping that many of the cities, or at least a number of the cities that we consider in the story of the Apostle Paul, will be places to which you can go. Uh, you, perhaps you'll see Athens. I know that previous groups have done that, uh, or the city of Rome, or other great places. And that, that will help you visualize the story of Paul and the places that he went to, and perhaps make it more meaningful as we go through this. A few things I'd like to observe at the outset of this particular session. Uh, the first thing is this, that our study at this point, including the first missionary journey of Paul and the second missionary journey of Paul, those two PowerPoint slide sets, will be the subject matter for the second test. At the end of the second missionary journey of Paul, you will be ready to take that second test, and then the third test will be following the final two PowerPoint series, which would be the third missionary journey, and then the arrest of Paul and the end of his life. And that will make the uh, course complete. I'd also like to remind you of the other two responsibilities that I'm asking you to carry out in this course. One of them would be that portfolio uh, about which we spoke. It's the one where you will choose at least two of the cities that Paul dealt with in one way or the other. It can be any of the cities. Jerusalem uh, is certainly one. Antioch would be another possibility, or even Damascus. Uh, it could be Tarsus, a place in which Paul was apparently born. It could be any of the cities that Paul preached in, including Rome itself. But choose two of them and work through the subject matter that I've given on Blackboard uh, in the syllabus and uh, be ready to have some pictures and some maps and some historical data on that, if you would please. And of course, the third thing is the reading assignments. There are four of them. Uh, one of them is drawn out of the biblical passages themselves in Acts and Philippians and Galatians and elsewhere. Uh, the other three are drawn out of uh, books that are good sources for the life of the Apostle Paul. All these will be made available to you on Blackboard, these four these three readings. Um, I'm assuming that you can look it up in your own Bible uh, as far as the first reading is concerned. I don't think these would be too time-consuming, but I would like you to read those so you can, you can have some acquaintance of a scholarly approach to the life of the Apostle Paul. So having said all of that, we are in the PowerPoint slide set that's entitled The First Missionary Journey. Uh, we'd spoken a little bit last time about uh, the mission of the church, and we had suggested that the mission of the church is missions. The Apostle Paul, of course, was the iconic missionary, uh, the first missionary, and I suppose we could say with some safety, the greatest missionary of all. Uh, perhaps you could run through your mind at this point missionaries you've known. Perhaps in your home congregation, uh, your congregation supports one or two or three, depending on how large the congregation is, missionaries. And perhaps you've even met these uh, men and these families as they've come back to America and reported on their works. 
Uh, I don't know how you feel about those kinds of reports. Sometimes the reports uh, might seem a little uh, dull uh, when they talk about people you don't know and places you don't know. But frequently when they come back and they have pictures, photographs, PowerPoints, and you can see uh, inner city Cusco, Peru, or you can see uh, Cape Town, South Africa, or you can see uh, Copenhagen, or something like that, and you can act actually begin to visualize the people and the works that these good individuals are. How do you feel about these people, these missionaries? Uh, do you see them as an important part of the church? Uh, do you see them as heroes? Uh, they frequently work in obscurity. Uh, over there in a part of the brotherhood that is very thin and where congregations are small, where there's not an awful lot of prestige, where they don't speak at great lectureships or write best-selling Christian books or anything along that line. Uh, they might be out there for three, four, five years and then come back here and receive a little attention, perhaps from the supporting congregations. But many times these individuals are out there with people who don't speak their language, who eat different kinds of food and have different cultures and, and different languages, and they surrender a great deal and exhibit, in my view, a great uh, amount of faith in God and a desire to see the world the way God sees it. And, and I go back to the Apostle Paul as I think about this. I know that the Holy Spirit was the one who is the impetus for that first missionary journey when Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Spirit himself. But I'm still impressed with the fact that the Apostle Paul can see a need to take this gospel message and give it to other people, the opportunity to other people to learn and know about Jesus Christ, the blessings that we have as Christians, the wonderful uh, privilege it is, the, the grace that has been given to us through Jesus Christ, the hope of heaven. It seems to me extraordinarily unfair to not share that with other people who've never heard the gospel. I'm not suggesting that every one of you within uh, earshot of my voice should become missionaries or even long-term missionaries, but some of you might become uh, church members and elders and deacons who support mission work, who are on board with the idea, uh, who will tell your leadership in your congregations that, that you would like the congregation to be characterized by having a worldwide vision. Uh, the Lord loves every nation. The Lord loves every race. The Lord loves every uh, color and language and tribe and people. The Lord wants all of them to be saved, not just us in the Bible Belt. Certainly, there are valuable souls right where we are in our own towns, and we need to be conscious of them. But it seems to me that if I'm in a congregation of 150, 200 in a town uh, of several thousand, that we can do that ourselves. Uh, reaching friends and family, influencing our communities, being the Christians we ought to be. But we should also be conscious of the need to send people to places that have far less of an opportunity to hear the gospel. And it seems to me that that's the heart and soul. It is remarkable that the Apostle Paul in an ancient day and age without modern modes of travel, uh, without the internet, without web pages, without shortwave radio or, or, or CDs or anything like that, traveled by foot probably, from town to town, from city to city, from nation to nation, and in effect, in one lifetime, spread the gospel all the way across the known world. It seems to me that if he could do that without the advantages that we have, certainly we could. 
Now, for the sake of uh, being able to see what we're going to do in the next several sessions, uh, most scholars divide the Apostle Paul's work as a missionary into what they refer to as the first, the second, and the third missionary journey. It should be noted that the book of Acts does not number the three missionary journeys in that manner. Uh, that's simply the way most Bible scholars have got it. The first missionary journey is recorded in Acts 13 and 14, and it extended from Antioch in Syria to Cyprus, and then into Asia Minor, and then making a full circle back to Antioch. It's uh, significant, I think, that Barnabas is a native of Cyprus, and so what they had done is that the missionary party first went to Barnabas's home area. Uh, there would have been advantages to that. Barnabas knew the territory, he knew many of the people, he perhaps knew the customs and the like, and so that would be a distinct advantage. And then, of course, the next place that they went, they returned to the mainland off of the island of Cyprus, and, and they went into the very area, Cilicia, of which Tarsus was a part, and here the Apostle Paul had the advantage of being the homeboy, if you can put it that way, and he could uh, perhaps um, be able to be the guide and the director and take people where they needed to go. The second missionary journey is recorded in Acts 16 through 18. Uh, this is uh, a, a trip that began in Asia Minor where it appears that Paul and Silas in this instance, and we'll talk about that more in a moment, of course, but where Paul and Silas get together and they moved back, first of all, across the area that, that they had been to in the first missionary journey. One assumes that they're grounding and strengthening the congregations, encouraging the ones that already exist. And then they move beyond that, finally, into the country of Greece itself, if you might recall the Macedonian call. And there they begin, of course, uh, evangelism, church planting uh, at its initial stage. The third missionary journey is described in Acts 19 through 21. Here Paul retraces his steps through Asia Minor and back into Greece, but then it ends in a rather sad procession back to Jerusalem, uh, where Paul is aware uh, that he is probably going to receive some persecution and perhaps even imprisonment, but he's still determined to go back to uh, the central city in Judaism. Those are the three missionary journeys that we're looking at. Now, if you're following in the PowerPoint slides, you can see the map that I provided of the Mediterranean Sea. And you can see in the map uh, on the far eastern side of the map uh, is Antioch of Syria. And you can see the area that is south of the Black Sea, between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And that area is Cilicia. And it is the area to which Paul uh, went um, several times, as it turns out. You might look south of uh, Cilicia and that area, and you can see Cyprus the island that uh, was the beginning of the missionary journey. Then you can look beyond uh, uh, Cilicia, Asia Minor, into Greece. That's, uh, uh, well, it's not quite to Rome and Italy, but it's the area in between, and that would be Macedonia, Philippi, Corinth, Athens, and those kinds of cities. And you can see the Boutil of uh, Italy just beyond that. If you looked even farther to the west, you can see the, the country of Spain, and you might recall that the apostle had ambitions of going as far as Spain. Uh, that would have been to the edge of the earth as far as they were concerned. And it was Paul's ambition, his vision, uh, to see to it that the gospel was spread as far as there. 
Now, it's probably as well to begin by uh, thinking about the strategy that Paul used. I am not suggesting that the same strategies exactly should always take place in our modern day mission work. I'm not suggesting that we should slavishly follow this, but there's a lot of wisdom to some of the things that Paul did. I realize that 20 centuries uh, intervene between the first century and ours, and perhaps there's differences in some places. Notice though that he did several things. Number one, he chose strategic centers he didn't start in small towns such as a Henderson or a Selma or a Penson, Tennessee, but he would have started in the large centers of a particular area, a Memphis perhaps, or a Nashville. And he uh, presumably decided that if you could establish the church in the inner city, in the great cities of, of the Roman world, that the gospel would then spread to the hinterland, to the country sides and to the villages that surrounded it. Uh, it seems to me that uh, that's remarkable because many times in our mission work and in our church work, we do the opposite. Uh, it would be the great cities are neglected, uh, and it would be the small towns and villages that we uh, tend to emphasize. Uh, if you think, for instance, of the United States, and you think about the great uh, churches that we have, and, and I'm thrilled that we have large churches in, in some areas, perhaps in what we know of as the Bible Belt in cities like Nashville and Memphis and Dallas and Fort Worth, Oklahoma City and Houston and, and so on. It's good that we do that, but it seems to me that we've neglected in, even in America, uh, great cities on the eastern seaboard, uh, Philadelphia and New York City and, and Boston and, and Washington, D.C. and the Virginia Beach um, area. Uh, there, there's great metropolitan areas that, that where the church is small and where the need is great. Or you could perhaps even think out in the western coast in a stretch all the way in the south from San Diego through Los Angeles to San Francisco, Seattle and Portland up in the far northwestern part of the United States. All of these areas are great metropolitan areas and in relative terms at any rate have smaller churches and less work going on each one of them. And perhaps that should be something we could think of. Paul started in the great strategic centers of his day, the, the Athens and the uh, uh, Corinth and the Philippi's and the Ephesus's and so on. The second thing that he did was he began in the synagogues. Uh, it was uh, it happened in almost every city if there was actually a, a Jewish synagogue available, that's where he went first. Note just one of the passages that suggests exactly this. Acts chapter 17, 1 and 2. Acts 17, 1 and 2. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, we read, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, notice, as was his custom. And on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, I don't suppose it would be too difficult to understand why Paul started in a Jewish synagogue. For a start, he was Jewish. And so uh, that would be a natural place for him to go. But this would be a community that already knew about God and already knew about a messianic promise that uh, the, the Jewish people were looking forward to and already knew what we consider the Old Testament. They, of course, would have considered it their Bible. And so there were, there were several places of commonality that Paul had with a, a Jewish crowd at a Jewish synagogue and he could uh, perhaps begin with that and so that's why he began there I'd like to make the observation that sometimes when you come into a large metropolitan area wherever it is a Johannesburg or a Jakarta Indonesia or any uh, great city in the world that it is a huge chunk 
and perhaps it would be a good strategy to think about some ethnic enclave, some, some group, uh, socio-economic group or racial group or tribal group that you could begin with, perhaps that there would be some advantages to begin with them. Uh, I, uh, an example I'm thinking of is in the nation of India, uh, which of course has a lot of different religions, uh, Hindu and Muslim and, and so on, but there are also people in India who uh, are Christian. I mean that in the broadest sense of the term, but I'm suggesting that, that Methodist and Episcopalian and, and Pentecostal and, and other Christian groups, that might be a place to begin with, uh, where at least those individuals would have an idea of the Bible and the high moral standards the Bible sets up and of who Jesus was and, and who the Apostle Paul was and so on. And that would be a good place perhaps to begin with uh, as you enter in one of the great centers of uh, India, uh, New Delhi or Mumbai or Calcutta or so on. And so uh, that's what Paul did. He began with an ethnic group that he knew and that gave him certain advantages. Number three in Paul's uh, missionary strategy, Paul is all things to all men. Now, these are his own words, and sometimes uh, people look at that and wonder precisely what he meant. But would you notice with me 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, where Paul uh, thinks through and expresses to the Corinthians something about his missionary strategy. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning with verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jew I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I became all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Please note the most famous statement in this passage, I became all things to all men. Uh, Paul's effort to uh, become like the people that he served with the gospel, uh, perhaps culturally, and in, in terms of literature, and, and the food that he ate, and so on, all things to all men, so he could influence them, he suggests. But I also want to notice a constraint that even Paul places in here, because I think we should remember that. Go back up to verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And then he puts in parentheses, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. And I think what he's suggesting there is, is that there are, of course, certain things about every culture, uh, then and now, uh, that would be ungodly. There would be things that we should not adopt as missionaries or as Christians uh, from our culture. Uh, you can think of many things in our American culture uh, that are typical, that are normal, that are uh, uh, things that our worldly friends might uh, not think there was anything wrong with, but that we, as Christians, could not adopt. Uh, uh, the obvious ones would be perhaps the language uh, that we use, the profanity that our society so frequently engages in, or perhaps moral and ethical things, uh, 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 the ignoring marriage and um, having uh, relations, sexual relations outside of marriage uh, or prior to marriage, those kinds of things. Uh, perhaps even uh, the pressure that Christians are put under in our society to uh, uh, accept, even uh, Christianize um, gays and lesbians and, and 
the like. And, and I lay all of that out to suggest that uh, Paul is not saying that all cultures are sweetness and light. Uh, that would go for America's culture, it would go for any other culture. Um, if you consider that Romans 3 and verse 23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when you consider that a society or a culture is a collection, a large collection of people, all of whom have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you can see what I mean when I say that there are cultures all over the world that have things that are good uh, and perhaps even admirable and also things that are not so admirable. Uh, I'd like to make an example of uh, a Zimbabwean custom. Uh, there are many things Zimbabweans do that are, are good. Perhaps you could even say better than the way Americans do things. Uh, one example I think of is that uh, many Zimbabweans um, include in their lives uh, and for their children an extended family. It seems to me would be a, a, a good thing for a child to grow up in. Uh, there is an old cliche that it takes a village to raise a child and, and that's that particular proverb actually comes from Africa, and it's a reality, and that would be an example of a good cultural thing uh, that we might even adopt in our own Christian culture over here quite happily. Uh, but there are some things that uh, Zimbabwean people do that are not necessarily good and wholesome. Uh, one of them I remember is that uh, sometimes in their culture they try to uh, identify a woman that they might consider a witch. Uh, they may feel as if she was putting spells on uh, people around her in the village or something like that. Is she a witch or is she not? And one of the tests to determine whether or not she was a witch is that they would take a, a clay pot full of boiling water. They would drop a stone into it as it sinks to the bottom. And what she's supposed to do is plunge her hand into the boiling water, grab the stone and pull it out. Now, if her arm is burnt, by the boiling water, then they'll say, oh, she was not a witch, she's okay. But if her arm is not burnt, then they say, well, only a witch could do that, and then they would take her life. Now, I'd like to suggest that uh, that's something that a Christian society would not want to adopt. So what is Paul saying when he says, I'm all things to all men? Clearly, he's not suggesting that, I, that, that as a missionary, we should take on the ungodly or the unkind or the cruel uh, practices of the host culture, uh, the country in which which we find ourselves. But he is suggesting, I think, that one of the things that a missionary needs to do is to reach into that community and adopt certain of the practices uh, of that culture. Uh, I would say one of the first things a missionary probably should do is learn the local language. Uh, I am able to speak the Shauna language. I've just said that in, in the Shauna language. And, and what I'm doing is I'm suggesting that that, that would be a great beginning to uh, reach people and to uh, get on their side, uh, uh, to communicate effectively. Uh, even in countries where many people speak pretty good English, it's still considered a great advantage if the uh, American, for instance, took the time and the trouble to learn uh, the local language. Um, uh, there may be a question of, of the mode of dress. Again, of course, many countries uh, might have very low standards of uh, 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 modesty uh, in the way that they dress, but my suggestion is uh, that if perhaps 
you were to live in the South Sea Islands, the Pacific Islands, uh, that sometimes wearing those uh, uh, long uh, kind of uh, uh, robe-like uh, uh, things, I don't know what they call them there, uh, would not be a bad thing uh, to identify with their culture. Uh, I have just uh, spoken to a number of Corral students who've returned from Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, they apparently had a great time out there. And one of the things, though, that our young people from Friedhofen said is, is literally scores of people in Cape Town would say, how do you like our country? How do you like our city? They were obviously eager for the Americans to say things like, oh, your city's a beautiful city. Oh, your people are a lovely people. And it seems to me that that's what Paul is suggesting. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that we shouldn't as Christians lie uh, about whether or not a country is beautiful or whether people are, are great, wonderful people. But, but it seems to me that eating their food at times and uh, taking on their mode of dress and speaking their language and, and living with them. Uh, sometimes missionaries may make a mistake of uh, putting themselves in a compound uh, where everything is American uh, when, they, when they do only American things uh, and uh, uh, they don't reach into the culture of which uh, they are apart. And it seems to me that that would be poor missionary practice. I'm not suggesting, of course, that Americans couldn't do some American things to remind them of home. Uh, the homesickness is, of course, a real thing. So I can picture a, a, a young man, perhaps, uh, going on the Internet and watching uh, an NFL football game every now and then so he can keep up with what's going on back in the States. Or a young woman sitting back and saying, oh, what I wouldn't give for a... Uh, uh, Snickers bar or something like that, uh, some distinctive food found in America. But Paul says, I became all things to all men. He's suggesting that he uh, becomes a part of that culture. And so uh, part of his missionary strategy was to uh, live with the people of that land and become a part of that culture. Number four, Paul's six-part missionary strategy, he frequently used the team. Uh, Paul typically did not like solo work. Uh, I'm not suggesting that a missionary could not do solo work. I'm not suggesting that that's the only way it could be done. Uh, but remember, of course, Paul is a single man, and obviously company and uh, uh, friends and, and the moral support of other Christians around him would be an important thing for him, it seems. And so uh, when you think about it, Paul had usually not just one, but a number. Now, in this first missionary journey, when Paul and Silas get together, it turns out uh, that with them is a young man named John Mark. He will come into the story a little later. But uh, in later times, you see Paul pick up Silas. You see him pick up a Timothy and a Titus and a Paphroditus and a Luke and, and many other individuals. And so there was frequently a missionary party that went from place to place. And I'm sure that they were a very good support system for each other. I'm also sure that it was very good for these men to learn how to work together as a team. Uh, if um, Christians cannot work together harmoniously and effectively, how, how will we reach the communities that we're in and bring them in as well? Paul often had an understudy. This is number five, and I suppose this is related to number four in some senses, but he would take a, a young man or even young men, and they would go with him, and, and you, you can see, perhaps, a process where he was developing leadership. So here is where Timothy, Titus, Luke, and others would fit in. They would observe Paul, the master missionary and preacher. Perhaps he would give them opportunities themselves to preach and teach and while, while he observed and perhaps made uh, pointers afterwards or something like that 
that, maybe even gave assignments and the like. Uh, this would not be that much different from Jesus and the 12 apostles uh, or even the 70 disciples that he seemed to have around him from time to time. And it's a good way to develop leaders. I, I, I give an example that is part of our culture in America. Perhaps some of you have run across this, uh, where an African-American preacher uh, would have three or four young men uh, who would go with him. And the African-American preacher might even call out a Bible passage and ask one of the young men to read that passage during the middle of his sermon. Uh, perhaps you even recall that there would be a kind of back and forth relationship uh, where the young man might read from a passage. I will think of Romans 12 verse 1. Uh, Therefore I urge you, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, to present your lives as a living sacrifice. And you can picture the young man reading uh, uh, in view of God's mercy and the preacher, the older man saying, in view of God's mercy, present your lives as a living sacrifice as a living sacrifice. Uh, it was a very effective preaching technique, but it also had the effect of developing the young men. And uh, here's a sense in which uh, uh, the next generation of preachers and leaders would be ensured. Paul used that method, is my point. Number six, he had a dream. I suppose we could refer to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where the angels speaking to the apostles at the ascension of Jesus said that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And then he adds to the uttermost parts of the world, to quote the King James Version. And there is a vision that the early church had. Uh, they were not content to keep the gospel to themselves. They had a vision for reaching all the corners of the earth. Now, uh, if you're following in the PowerPoint slide, I have a map of Cyprus. Uh, it is located in the eastern Mediterranean and would not have been that far a voyage from Antioch of Syria down into the eastern part of Cyprus. And uh, you perhaps will note that they move generally from east to west or from right to left across the island, uh, preaching and teaching. I have a picture down below, a temple to Apollon. Uh, you can see the pillars and perhaps even see uh, the remains of some of the walls. Uh, Cyprus was an ancient and venerable culture in many ways older even than the Greek uh, empire and, and, and the Greek culture. Uh, in fact, there are some similarities between the two cultures, but uh, Cyprus is where they began. Uh, there is uh, on the next slide a uh, theater at Kurion. You can see the semicircular nature of the uh, seats as they rise up. You can even see the ocean beyond. Uh, what a spectacular place to perhaps listen to uh, 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 an orator speak or uh, perhaps watch a play, uh, a drama that they might have been putting on. Uh, certainly this was a profoundly civilized and advanced culture in many ways. The next picture, of course, shows modern Lemesos. Uh, where um, today uh, you can see uh, traffic and a large city and apartments and the like. So uh, uh, these, these are still cities that are around even today. Now, uh, the book of Acts describes the trip into Cyprus in uh, Acts 13, beginning with verse 4. I'd like to read some of these verses and, and make some observations as we go along. Uh, so Acts chapter 13, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, that would be the, 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 the city on the coast, the port, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, 
They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had uh, had John to assist them. John would be a relative of Barnabas, and uh, he makes the third named person of the missionary party. There may or may not have been other people as well, but of course John will become uh, uh, important later on in our story. In verse 6, we uh, find that the missionary party runs run across a person by the name of Bar-Jesus. When they had gone through the whole island as far far as Paphos, that would be on the far western side of the island, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. A couple of things that I'd like to mention from that statement. Uh, the first is, Jesus was in fact a fairly common name in the first century. Sometimes we forget uh, that uh, uh, though we revere and love Jesus of Nazareth, that there were in fact many other people. In fact, there are still cultures in our day and age that uh, will name their young men after Jesus. So uh, the Hispanic people might have a Jesus uh, as one of their boys. Uh, I, I would think a very fine way to honor a young man. That might be a name that would be difficult to live up to. And in another sense, all of us are seeking to live up to the name of Jesus if we're Christians. But at any rate, here is a bar Jesus that basically means son of Jesus. So in fact, it would be his father who had been named Jesus. But here he is, he's Jewish and he's a false prophet and he's a magician, it says. And then verse seven, he was with a proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed him, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, there's a couple of things I would like to mention at this juncture. One of them is the use of the term proconsul. Uh, a proconsul described a particular kind of Roman uh, local governor. Uh, he would have two years tenure in any city or any province of the Roman Empire. Typically a proconsul was sent to a, uh, an area that was considered peaceful, an area perhaps that even had Roman colonies within it. Uh, a proconsul then would be uh, someone that they would run across in Corinth later on and in the city of Ephesus as well. Uh, however, uh, uh, the, the nation of Judea and Jerusalem did not have a proconsul. They would have a procurator or later on a governor. Uh, both of these would be an indication that uh, Judea was considered much more troublesome uh, uh, province, one where there was uh, still a guerrilla warfare and the possibility of rebellion. And so uh, the governor would stay there for a longer period and would have more or, or greater powers uh, to deal with um, any security problems. So here in Cyprus, uh, uh, this Sergius Paulus is an individual who the Bible describes as an intelligent man and a man who clearly wanted to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say. Uh, Paul comes down very hard on him, uh, on this uh, Bar-Jesus or this Elamus. Uh, in fact, he makes him blind uh, by God's power. Uh, Barnabas and Saul, we note in uh, uh, um, 13 and verse 2 that it's, Saul and, that it's Barnabas and Saul. And then we note in chapter 13, verse 13, uh, if I could read that. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Uh, there's a fairly important verse for several reasons, but many scholars have noted the switch in the order from Barnabas and Paul to Paul and Barnabas. Uh, 
uh, again, it seems to me interesting to think that uh, Paul, of course, a very powerful personality, a very compelling personality. Uh, sooner or later, that personality would uh, become the dominant one in the partnership, it seems. Uh, at the same time, it should be said that Barnabas was the kind of person who was prepared to allow the talented and powerful Paul to have his way and to grow to that position of leadership. Part of being an encourager, as Barnabas was, was to uh, try to see a person through to his greatest potential. Uh, once again, I would like to suggest that Barnabas, uh, here probably for the third time, is a part of the development of the Apostle Paul. And I ask the question, I wonder if uh, Paul would have become the great missionary and preacher and teacher he was without the help of Barnabas, the encourager. Uh, this becomes significant later on because of a conflict the two men had. Uh, but uh, notice also here it says, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. What has happened is they've come back to the mainland, uh, to Cilicia, to Asia Minor, and uh, the text here does not suggest why uh, young John Mark left. We can only surmise, we can only guess, but we have some clues in a later passage, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Chapter 13, verses 9 through 12, uh, describes Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul, uh, Paul and Barnabas, as companions, uh, uh, beginning to travel through uh, the area around which the Apostle Paul would have grown up. You might see in the next slide that there is actually a map uh, showing the Apostles, or, or at least Paul, and uh, Barnabas's uh, uh, progress from Antioch. Uh, and you can follow the arrows, the line across to Salamis, and then to Paphos, both in Cyprus, and then north by sea to Perga, uh, and then north beyond that to Antioch. This would be a different Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia. And then perhaps you can see that they moved in a generally southeastern direction uh, to the towns of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And then you might notice that the arrows return. Uh, going back up through these same cities. I am assuming that what happens is that Paul and Barnabas establish churches in each of these places and then comes back uh, and strengthens, grounds, teaches them more. Uh, I think about the second part of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus says, Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And that's the part of the commission we often hear emphasized, but perhaps we don't as often hear the other part, and teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. Uh, one of the important jobs that any missionary needs to do is to ground and strengthen and deepen the faith of Christians to develop leadership to perhaps at some point make it so that the local church can stand on its own two feet so that anything happens to the missionary or indeed if the missionary needs to or wants to travel to other places that the local leadership can do it themselves. If I can uh, make an analogy, uh, the United States right now is engaged in two conflicts, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan and uh, I, I think it would be fair to say that in both cases American troops, American forces are trying to make that transition where they train local police and local army uh, forces to be able to defend the country themselves. So there will come a point when uh, hopefully American soldiers can return home and Afghani soldiers and uh, uh, police could take care of their own country and their own population and protect them uh, the way that uh, we take for granted uh, that our police and our army can do over here. Well, the same thing would be true in a church. When the missionary leaves or when a, a strong leader uh, dies or something like that, can the church carry on without him? 
and certainly Paul is seeking to ensure that that is what occurs. Now the next PowerPoint slide is an image of Antioch and uh, there's two things I'd like to observe on this. The first is you can see uh, uh, in the foreground uh, a street in old Antioch. Uh, you can see the Roman paving, you can see uh, what must have been a curb and even part of a pillar. Uh, perhaps there was a place where there would have been a series of columns and uh, uh, along the side and they, the columns would hold up businesses or something like that uh, that travelers might stop at and uh, look at. Notice secondly uh, the mountain range that is behind it. Uh, there is a mountain range, a pretty uh, solid mountain range that runs east and west oh about 30 or 40 miles inland from the Mediterranean and what happens is that they're high enough to have a lot of snow and in the spring of course the snow will melt and there are a lot of springs and a lot of rivers and and so the cities of Asia Minor tended to uh, be located along the base of these mountains taking advantage of the rivers and springs and the water that had been collected there uh, obviously a metropolitan area would need water in order for it to survive and prosper and so this would be true of Antioch, of Iconium, Lystra, and Derby as well. Now, first of all, Paul arrives in Antioch or Pisidia. This is in Acts 13, verses 13 through 41. Uh, it makes its way uh, uh, into Asia Minor, Paul's home area. John Mark returns home, as we'd already noted. Uh, Luke does not say why, but what happens um, uh, is, is, is something we'll describe later. But, but they come into Antioch of Pisidia, and, and Paul preaches in a synagogue. Uh, again, we've noticed that this is his practice. Uh, this is something that he'll always do. But as he walks into the synagogue, uh, we see a, a fascinating capsule of the way Jewish people worshipped in that first century. Uh, if you would, follow with me in Acts chapter 13. And I'll begin with verse 13. Um, I'm sorry, with verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, and that's the first thing I'd like to notice, uh, it does appear that it was the practice in Jewish synagogues to have two readings. They would work their way through the law, beginning with Genesis and going through to Deuteronomy, and then they would start again, and also the prophets, uh, beginning, of course, with Isaiah, and then going all the way through Malachi, and they would read um, something like a chapter or a paragraph at a time, uh, reading through every Sabbath day. The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, that is, the missionary party, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Uh, I, I see that uh, scenario where apparently uh, local leadership felt like, well, it's, it'd be great to have a guest speaker. It'd be great to hear somebody else talk. And so Paul and Barnabas had this opportunity then to stand up and deliver uh, the first gospel message uh, in this particular city, or at least we suspect so. Uh, what Paul does as he stands up and delivers his message is, is basically goes through a history of the Jewish people. Uh, in our day and age, when we read the sermon, we might sort of roll our eyes and say, well, why is he going through that stuff that, that we already know? Uh, the choosing of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the, uh, the raising of Moses as a leader in Israel and so on. Why does he do that? And I'd like to suggest that there are two things. First of all, uh, he's appealing to Jewish history. These are Jewish people. They're proud of their history, uh, as they had a right to be. Uh, we're proud of the history of our cultures and our background. And so perhaps to hear someone stand up and say, uh, uh, here's some things that we should 
should be proud of as Americans and sort of do a thumbnail uh, sketch of American history and the high points would perhaps set the congregation or the crowd on our side. That's what Paul does. But what he also does, of course, is he begins to show how this Messiah was an expectation that the uh, Jewish people always had and then how Jesus fit that. And that was sort of the punchline at the end of the sermon. Uh, there seemed to be quite a bit of interest in Antioch of Pisidia. Uh, the response initially, at least, is good. Read, if you would, verses 42 through 44. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Uh, so at least initially, there's a good reaction, a good response. A lot of people are curious and want to learn more about Jesus and the gospel and the like. Now, again, if you're following in the PowerPoints, then uh, we go to the next town along the way, moving in a southeasterly direction. Uh, this is the city of Iconium. Once again, the mountains are inland behind them, and so each of these cities uh, is blessed with that. I have a picture of Iconium. Uh, it's not a big city today. It's just a village, but you can see the mountains in the background. You can see in the foreground around the trees in a very uh, green, verdant area. Uh, in Acts 14, 1 through 7, uh, the uh, work in Iconium is described. It's on the main route from Ephesus on the coast to Antioch of Syria, uh, running through these cities, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And mountain ranges, of course, behind, as I've said, and so these cities take advantage of the mountain springs. Uh, uh, what would it be like to be on the main route? It might be uh, the difference, I suppose, between being Henderson, Tennessee, and Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, you might notice that Henderson, Tennessee is on the 100 highway. Uh, I suppose there's some traffic moving up and down the 100 highway, but the 40 freeway up in Jackson connects Memphis with Nashville, in fact connects uh, large parts of the United States. And so uh, you might surmise that would be one of the reasons why Jackson is a, a large and growing city and why Henderson is uh, at this point still a rather small town. Uh, that, that the difference might, uh, amongst other things, be the fact that Henderson is not set on a strategic route going through uh, that, uh, that particular part of the world. Uh, Lystra, uh, uh, Iconium, Lystra is the next uh, city along the way. Uh, in Acts 14, verses 8 through 18, the missionary party had crossed some kind of border, it seems. For the people of Lystra generally did not speak Greek. Uh, notice in verse 11 it says, They lifted up their voices and said in Lyconian, whatever that language was, uh, uh, it seems the Greek wasn't uh, uh, their, uh, their first language or at least a well-known language there. I'd like to read um, some of the verses here, Acts 14, beginning with verse 8, because this represents a, a change in what Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas had been doing. Now at Lister there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, we read. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. I'm fascinated with the, uh, the, the wording that Luke uses. He sprang up and began walking. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not lame, uh, though you might, may consider me to be uh, a very elderly individual, but I find that when I've sat down on the ground for some period of time, that getting up is a little bit of a struggle. Uh, my, my knees and my, my, my bones are a little bit uh, uh, cramped, and so it takes a little uh, while to get up and uh, get stretched and get ready to go. But notice that this man goes from lame to springing up 
and walking. Uh, this reminds us of Peter and John at the Gate Beautiful earlier in Acts. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconium, this would be the language other than Greek, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they call Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was a chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, uh, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowd. Now, we'll read in just a moment the response that Paul and Barnabas have in the next couple of verses, but it is fascinating how uh, superstitious uh, this particular city is. Uh, there was a legend that um, Zeus and Hermes had entered this very city and tried to gain shelter in many of its homes. Uh, however, most of the important people, the wealthy people who would have room in their homes, uh, turned these two gods away. Only a poor elderly couple finally gave them lodging for the night. And so the gods made their humble home uh, in a temple uh, at that particular place. I have on the PowerPoint an image. It's actually uh, from a pot found in Asia Minor, uh, but it's a picture of Zeus. And of course, you recall that the Lyconian people uh, called um, Barnabas Zeus. And then below that, there's an image of Hermes. Uh, they call Paul Hermes. Uh, the theory is that Paul appears to have been the spokesman. And Hermes, in uh, uh, ancient Greek uh, uh, legend and, uh, and, and the like, was supposed to be the spokesperson for uh, Zeus himself. So perhaps this is another indication that Paul is the uh, most outspoken or um, the spokesperson of the crowd. Now, what I'd like to do now is to read the rest of this passage, uh, chapter 14 of Acts, uh, verse 14, and note the response of Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd crying out. The tearing of garments, of course, would be the classic way that Jewish people would uh, show distress. And so uh, they're distressed at what's happening. Men, why are you doing these things? We are, all, we are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. Presumably these vain things would be the worship of idols and false gods. To a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Please note that verse 16 is quite similar to a later speech that Paul will give to the Athenian crowd where there also he suggests that in the past God looked, uh, overlooked the ignorance but now commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness. And I love this expression of uh, how we might know that God is in existence and how he created the world. He did not leave himself without witness, Paul says, for he did good by sending you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. Uh, to their credit, Paul and Barnabas are not going to accept worship. Uh, that, of course, is not their due. But uh, up until now, we've observed messages in the book of Acts that are mainly uh, expressed to Jewish leaders. And so you have Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, and you have Stephen's sermon to the Sanhedrin and the Jewish crowd later on. And of course, you have the sermon I referred to in Antioch of Pisidia in the Jewish synagogue. And so here also uh, we have a, a sermon, uh, but it is addressed to pagans. I'd like to note very briefly the four points of his sermon. Number one, we're just men like you. 
In worship, it's important not just to remember who God is, but who we are. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are just humans, uh, not worthy of worship. Uh, God alone is worthy of that. Number two, but the God we serve, they say, is the living God who made everything. Uh, they identify the God of the heavens and the earth, not as a God who's just the God of the ocean or of the mountains or of war or of love or something like that, the way that mythology had it in those days, a God for each of those, but here is a God of everything. Number three, in the past, he that has God allowed nations to go their own way. In he implying, of course, that this has now changed, that now uh, God is not going to allow nations to go their own way. God is now requiring a change, a repentance uh, of people. And then number four, he has left evidence of his existence in creation. And uh, I think I'll come back to that particular point in the next session because I see we are almost out of time. Uh, I appreciate you listening, and I hope this has been beneficial. Uh, my response to that it would be any time we study God's word, it's well worth it. Goodbye, and God bless.